1: Hello and welcome to episode 31 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While well, in addition to that, there are also some off activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week it's two up top. That means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Carl. So, Carl, how have you been since you last spoke?
2: Yeah, really good, thanks, Dan. You know, I mean, apart from a a bad cup performance by us, but picked up again last night. So looking forward to chatting Premier League again.
1: Fantastic. We're fully on board that Spurs roller coaster. We're at the top for the moment. Who knows where we'll be next week? But that also means you're joined by Fulham fan Matthew. Matthew, how have you been? I hope all is well this past seven days.
3: Yeah, it's been all fantastic. Not only were were full and victorious, but results uh, around the rest of the around the rest of the championship I mean we are. I think the magic number now is twenty points uh, needed for us to secure promotion. Obviously, teams can lose points in between then. So yeah, it's all coming uh, come, all come together nicely. It's
1: in touching distance now, isn't it, Matthew? Yes,
3: yeah, it's fantastic. It's literally there.
1: Before we get there, let's do some social media bits. I was we'll be talking into the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter at Dan Tracy. 1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce we're now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network, that being Sports Social. So check out the URL and all the links posted throughout the week on the Real Football Pod account. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. Also, I need to mention my content partner, that being Betting.com, for all the tips and predictions you'll ever need, visit that website, and the easiest way to find all the links is by going to Linktree slash realfootballcast, put a dot between the R and the E, you get 10 podcast platforms to choose from, it's never been easier to listen to this show. Right, it's time to go live, where should we go first? Let's go to Stamford Bridge, and although we discussed the situation at Chelsea in some detail last week, that situation has changed quite considerably. So, Carl, with that in mind, what do you make of the fact that Chelsea are officially up for sale?
2: Yeah, it was, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, obviously there's lots of views around this and Roman Ram, Abramovich and what he's done for football. But, you know, I think obviously he's made what he thinks is the best decision for them. I mean, uh, you know, whether they're up for sale or not, it is going to be up there for debate, isn't it? And and what sort of role he still may play or what happens. But, you know, it's a lucrative you know club for someone to think about taking on especially when you consider that Rummen's now saying he's going to clear clear all that debt away from the club and not leave that in someone's hands to try and clear up so you know I can imagine there'll be a lot of people out there saying well actually this is a really attractive opportunity but obviously Chelsea will want to make sure they get the right people in who want to try and follow on from what has been a success for them even though you know they do things controversially sometimes and get rid of managers quite quickly you have to say whatever they've done and what decisions they've made have always been successful and led them on to better things so it's just about making sure whoever comes in now and I think this is what will happen they'll try to make sure that they go along similar lines and don't want to try and veer off too much from what has been a successful model, really.
1: Well, this is it, Matthew. The transition for Chelsea needs to be as smooth as possible. However, three billion is not cheap at all, really. Let's be honest. No one's really got three million or three billion, shall we say, sitting in their back pocket. So there are a couple of suitors that have been linked. You get the feeling that Abramovich wants a quick sale. He might need a quick sale. Will he get a quick sale?
3: I don't think I don't think he will because, as you know, I said, that. First off, there is the cost, which means it probably does limit you or limit Chelsea to a very elite a uh, group of people a very select group of people but then even if you know it's down to because i you know there's a bit i've seen reports about 10 difficult it's then you've got to sort of fight off you know who's going to want because it really does depend on what abramovich wants of the club if he is completely washing his hands of it um then it could just be right i'll just get that i'll just get whoever's giving me the first uh, the first bit but if he really cares about the club which which he which you feel he does because again he's been one of the more prominent owners um, as a bit, you know, compared to the likes of the Glazers and the Cronkies um, in summer, in um, around the, around the Premier League, because if he actually cares, then he might want to have right, who is going to actually take the club forward in a way that in a way that I want them to, you know, similar to like Ashley when he was letting Newcastle go, you know, he wanted. Yeah, you know, he wanted the money, but he also wanted a team that would look after Newcastle, as it were. So if he's got to vet out the process to make sure that things are going well, then it could very well take some time, especially if he's got to go through, you know, 10... 10- uh, 10 different suitors So it, yeah I, I can't see this being done any I mean At least we got The starting process done You know Started off the way But No like the Newcastle thing I don't think it's going to be You know The two years That it was with Newcastle But I certainly do think it, It's not going to be done You know By the end of the season For instance for Chelsea
1: Well Carl When it comes to the sale of Chelsea As you mentioned Abramovich is prepared to Write off Loans of 1.5 billion You know That's a massive amount of money Which just Doesn't exist anymore It's gone with that said, how sustainable is Chelsea's long-term model? Because the whoever comes in is going to need deep pockets, shall we say. Can they be a top-tier club? I'm not going to say that it all collapses overnight, but would they have to kind of tailor their ambitions somewhat?
2: Yeah, I think the good thing is, I mean, you know, I, I can't see someone coming in, you know, the, the way you make money in football is by being successful on the pitch, isn't it? Because that's where you then generate your fan base around the world, and it brings in it brings in the money along with it, with sponsorship and everything. So whoever takes that over, the the way you've got to make money is by being at the top table, um, and that's what they're going to need to do. So as you say, it's going to be about finding the right way to kind of you know measure everything up and keep it all sustainable. But I don't see Chelsea suddenly dropping off a cliff in terms of football, you know, like a Leeds United or anything like that. You know, I think some fans are thinking and hoping that this will be the end of Chelsea. I don't see it. You know, they're in too good a position. And whoever comes in is going to know that you've got to keep the club in that position. They've got to be at the top table. They've got to be fighting for top honours. And when you consider that debt that's been written off, that just makes it even more attractive to go in and think, well, if we can just keep this going... You know, there's money to be made here because whoever comes in, you won't get, you know, an owner who comes in like, you know, in previous, you know, in history, owners used to be people who cared about the club. That's not what football is about anymore. It's about coming in and making money. Um, so the people who come in are going to want to make money, and to do that, you still need to keep the side successful and keep them where they are. So. You've got to come in and balance it, but I don't see Chelsea dropping off a cliff and I think those who come in will still want to keep them at that top table and do what they need to.
1: Well, Matthew, one issue could be their stadium because if you think about what they can recoup in terms of matchday revenue, it's not as much as the likes of Manchester United, Tottenham, Vieti had, Manchester City. It's quite a small ground in, in comparison to the big six counterparts. Is that going to hold Chelsea back when that sustainability or that subsidy, shall we say, is no longer there. Is the next owner going to have to do exactly the same?
3: I, th- I think so. And, the you know, the Chelsea... Pitch situation, the Chelsea uh Chelsea Pitch Owners Club—I can't remember the exact term—but they've always sort of kicked up a fuss. Because I remember this discussion about ten years ago, when there was talk about their moving uh, from Stamford Bridge. Because again, they realised you know ten years ago that they needed a bigger ground, or they may need to move. So it's it's always been something that has held them back. So it's certainly going to be an interesting one for the Chelsea owners to. Um, to to look into, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to look to expand to generate revenue, or are they going to, or are they going to have to move? Which will be, you know, a big excess and a big um a big expense rather that they that they're gonna they're gonna to have to factor into it. So it's 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 only gonna be it's only gonna be an interesting one. I think another reason why I think it's not gonna be such a quick fix because there may be, a, you know, the, the preferred bidder may say, right, we'll give you x amount of money, but we're not gonna uh, we're not going to uh, build steam, which, you know, as I hinted at earlier, Abramovich might say, no, we. I want the best for this club. I want the club to expand. You know, so I want, you know, a 60,000-seater stadium either at Stamford Bridge or, or, or a new stadium somewhere, which, if you're looking at that part of London, there's not really a lot of places for you to go to. So it could be very, very expensive for them to work out. So, yeah, it's going to be, you know, a major problem for them trying to work it out.
1: Well, Cole, one of the ways to ease that problem and be sustainable is by booking a return to the Champions League. After a comprehensive 4-0 win over Burnley on Saturday, they're certainly going about that the right
2: way. Yeah, I don't see any dangers there from, to be honest, Dan. I think, you know, they, they've got that third position sewn up because I don't think any of the other teams that are kind of there, you know, I mean, Arsenal are obviously in the best position to kind of push them, you know. They've got the game in hand on Chelsea still. So if they win that, they're right on their towels. But ultimately... Arsenal have got some really tough games where I think they'll actually be tested and I'm not sure if they can come through that. So, I think Chelsea will do enough to make sure third's in there. You know, they're not going to catch Liverpool. You know, they're they're 10 points behind at the moment. Yes, a game in hand but no one's catching that top two. But I think Chelsea will have enough about them to make sure they finish third and probably third comfortably and then, as you say, that puts them back in the Champions League Um, and then, of course, that's where you've got to be to attract the best players and, and hopefully progress for them as a club by being able to you know tailor their summer transfer spending around being in that competition so great result at the weekend you know there was a tough first half Burnley played really well up to half time and then suddenly just kind of collapsed afterwards but Chelsea had to take their chances and then in the end they just kind of basically steamrolled through Burnley and were very clinical so good result
1: yeah, once Burnley's resolve was broken, they sort of collapsed really, didn't they? A performance unlike Burnley at home. I think also with Burnley, it's been a bad week. Because although you could probably make a case for Chelsea winning quite comfortably at Turf Moor, the Leicester game in midweek, not so much. So two missed opportunities to get points on the board. And that means they are still in the bottom three. But Matthew, during that encounter, there were a chance of Roman Abramovich by the Chelsea supporters. Now, that's not the biggest surprise. Because obviously Chelsea like to back their own. And, you know, we don't want to go too down far down that trench, but you know, they are not the best when it comes to their own fan chance. But what did you make of Thomas Tuchel's comments after the game? Was he right to call out the blue supporters?
3: I think he was because I yeah you know, I don't particularly have an issue with the Roman Abramovich chance per se. You know, as you said, they like her and after what Abramovich has brought to the club, you know, I'm not I'm not going to go along the lines of, oh Chelsea, they were only invented in they were only uh, founded in 2003. I'm not going to go down that line, but you think of what he has done for the club since he bought them. He has revolutionised the club and made them yeah you know, has effectively made them the club they are today. You know, single handedly. Um, so. Chance of Rembrandt, per se, I don't necessarily disagree with. I think it was more the timing of it all. Like, If you're going to do it during the game, again, you can kind of understand, even if it's in slightly uh, controversial circumstances because of his relationships with Vladimir Putin and all that sort of stuff. Again, you can kind of understand it because of the relationship, but I think it was more the timing of it all. If to do it during The um, uh, moment of solidarity, I think, is the right way Uh, for the people of Ukraine that, you know, the Premier League and uh, a number of other sporting clubs um, uh, did over the weekend. I think it's more the timing. That's the bit that's sort of slightly off-putting. You think... It it is just, it is just a case of re you know read the room, you no know, Chelsea fans who, as you've said, as you've into that have not exactly been exemplary in the past. Um, but it's, it, it's but you'd you'd think that even even they would know exactly when to sort of start doing those sort of things. And that certainly wasn't the right time. So yeah, I totally agree with Tuchel for um uh, his, for his comments afterwards, because it's a case of, you understand why, but just pick the right time.
1: Yeah, it's quite refreshing actually. I thought you know usually it could be a case of. The club just got ignoring it and thinking, oh, well, it's happened. But for the manager to actually put his head above the parapet and say, do you know what, guys, this isn't on. Please don't do it again. I think it's quite actually what we need, really. So more power to Tuchel. But staying off pitch just a little bit longer. Cole, last week we spoke about Russia being booted out of the international pitcher for the foreseeable. Now, Ukraine's World Cup playoff with Scotland has been postponed. Now, when you consider that Ukraine, their national team, the bulk of their squad is still based in Ukraine or Ukrainian clubs. I guess this is the right decision, isn't
2: it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, football has its place, isn't it? But with everything that's going on, I think, you know, football should come last on that list of priorities for that country right now. And, you know, trying to fulfil this fixture with everything that's going on there is right just to say, listen, we don't need this headache, so... Actually, you know that's not that's not play this game, and I don't think anyone's going to sit there and go, oh well, you know why are we not playing this fixture right now? So I think the right call's definitely been made, um, and it's good to see some sense come for once.
1: Of course, Matthew, that will mean a knock knock-on effect for Wales. Now, when you sort of consider the backlog we've now got, the pathway to Qatar has been a little bit disjointed because you've got these FIFA dates and also the Nations League dates that need to be slotted in somewhere. So if you're trying to schedule this and plan it, how on earth does this all unfold to see one team out of that four go to Qatar?
3: Yeah, it, it's incredibly confusing you've got to work out because um, you can always move the you know the Scotland Ukraine. Yeah, as you said, the next best thing would be to put it in the Nations League in that in that Nations League window but that would mean fixing things up. and you know Scotland and Ukraine would then in their respective Nations League would then have to play three games in the space of a week rather than two and then of course there's they could also be the playoff final if you know well one of them's going to get there so it is incredibly confusing you just have to hope that you know some happy medium comes along even if it is you know at the end of you know at the end of the season you know like uh, I can't remember when it is, but like the 1st of June, that sort of thing, rather than into July and sort of thing, because it has to be, because you've got to think, because it also sort of affects the World Cup draw, as it is, because I'm sure you, you can't just put a um, a, a placeholder for the teams. So I know that depending on who would go through Wales, Scotland, Austria, Ukraine, it would affect the seeding, so it depend on what pot they would go in. So this is something that is going to you know affect effectively the whole World Cup qualification campaign whatever whatever is left of it. So it is incredibly confusing and you know, obviously it's not, it is obviously not the main thing I sort of want to stress that, but it is one of those things that, you know, again, me as a Wales fan, this could be our first World Cup since 1958. I want to try to think, can we at least make this as smooth as possible and not have to, you know, panic or worry about all what's going on or are we going to be not in a sense cheated out of it but you know if things have to be cancelled and moved around and you know this could affect our nation's league but we just want everything to be done fairly and in the right way
1: yeah it's a well mindful is probably not the best use of a term but you know what I mean it's not ideal it's far from ideal in terms of schedule planning because when you consider international dates they're always a bit just jumbled around they're always a bit awkward in terms of when they actually are scheduled into the, the club season this is just a bigger headache for everyone to deal with and I don't know. I mean, do you have to gradually let Ukraine out of the playoffs and say, sorry, we can't schedule you in? I don't know. Is that fair? Does Scotland get a bye? Is that fair for them to face Wales or Austria? It just seems an absolute mess. But let's move on now to matters on the pitch, because first we'll go to the Manchester derby. Cole, it wasn't the most one-sided clash, shall we say, but it certainly felt like men versus boys that he had on Sunday.
2: Yeah, that's right, Dan. I mean, especially the second half, wasn't it? I mean, the first half you know, United actually held their own, didn't they? You know, and and actually were playing some good football at times. You know, although City got, you know, went one up early, United recovered well, I thought, and kind of were looking slightly dangerous. Then they get the equaliser. And again, you think, right, okay, you know, that's, that was justified. You know, they'd earned that equaliser because they were playing the better football. Um, Then the second, and ultimately, they then come out in the half-time. And I think, you know, as people like Roy Keane have said, it did just look like they'd kind of given up. You know, he's come out and you expected him maybe, listen, the way you'd been playing that first half, come out, play like that again, a little bit more intensity and who knows, but they just did not show up in the second half and then ultimately, as you say, the way the game then finishes, it was just men against boys, it turned into a training ground game and, and that just isn't acceptable when that's probably, you know, one of your biggest fixtures of the season calendar and you're trying to fight for top four um, it is just a mess there, isn't it at the moment at United um, and you don't see any quick fix coming at all where you sort of think within the next five or six years you see them progressing much further than where they are now. They need a massive clear out in the summer, which I think will happen. but they also then now need to try and figure out what are they doing, who are they going for and what's their what's their kind of future plans and how they want to develop. but that is that is becoming a bigger rebuild by the week.
1: Well, Matthew, the rebuild might see Marcus Rashford depart because there's a rumor in the last few days or so that he's now considering his future. Now, I think that's not something that he would have maybe considered months ago. But are the wheels falling off at Man United? Is he going to be one of these people out the exit door in the
3: summer? I think he could very. I think he could very well be because I think he is a player that hasn't. Now, whilst he's been good, I think there is a, that always just indication of him especially in the recent years, he could be a little bit more than what what he has been, than what he has been. And after the fantastic start that he made when he was coming through um, back in 2016, I think it was. So if there is a chance for Manchester United to cash in on him, you know, I don't exactly what he'd be worth, but young, you know, youngish English talent, 50 million. I don't think is too crazy a number to put out, especially given, you know, if if a club like Newcastle United want him, or uh, West Ham, if they make it into Europe, we'll have the money to spend, I think fifty million is a reasonable thing. So if they can you know cash in on him and bring in someone else that you know the new managers, uh, whoever it may be, the new manager will want. I think it's you know allow him to you know mold the team in his own image. I think that's probably an avenue that you would expect that you would expect, and you know wouldn't necessarily be against them going down. So yeah, and also the behind the scenes thing. As that has been hinted. Yeah, I think it's probably looks as if maybe, maybe his you know his time at Old Trafford is, is, might just be coming to an end.
1: Carl, is part of the problem for Marcus Rashford the fact that we don't really know his best position? That, you know, started out as a centre forward in the old ilk. Now he's a kind of more wide forward, but you don't really feel you're getting the best out of him in that position. Does he need a change of club and going back to the, the spearhead of attack?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's always a problem for those players that do move around positions, isn't it? You know, it's great for a manager to have players that you think you can use in maybe two or three different positions. But then as a player, you can't get settled. But ultimately, at the same time, you know, he does have to look at himself. You know, he hasn't been as good as he probably should have been. He does need to kind of get better at finishing. Um, But ultimately, yes, the, the way things are going right now, you would maybe say the best thing for him would maybe be a move, somewhere where he can go and say, well, listen, this is a position I want to play. I want to be a central striker. And then a club will say, "Okay, well, that's where we'll play you. Um, And if that happens, then it's up to him to then go and make the most of it, you know, there is a player in there, definitely. You know, we've we've seen games where he can tear people apart and, you know, he can be clinical, but it's just not, not enough from him. He's a very inconsistent player. So, he will have to look at himself and try and solve that. But maybe to help that, Maybe it is time to move on um, and, and look for pastures new where you, you become the big fish, if you like, and you are the main striker. And then it's up to him to kind of prove that with his finishing and, and say, well, look, listen, you know, this is where I needed to play all along. Um, I can definitely see that happening. You know, I think with everything that's gone on this season, I definitely see him being a player that come next season might look to be moving on. And, and you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, someone like Newcastle, that might be an attractive, attractive you know, position for him and an attractive club, given given where they might be going in the next few years.
1: Well, of course, Newcastle, as we always say, if they get phase one of the project complete, then players like Rashford are on the table all of a sudden and 50 million might just be a small drop in the ocean. So watch that space in terms of Rashford. In terms of another Man United. Starlet, shall we say, Matthew? Jaden Sancho, I think it's fair to say he's been one of the better players since Ralph Rangnick's arrival. They've started to get a tune out of him and he's starting to become more of the player that they signed in the summer. The one they hoped, shall we say?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It obviously took a little bit of time. Maybe he just wasn't quite there under under the Oli Gunner Solskjaer system. But you know, Ralph Rangnick seems to be getting the most out of him. And you know, he's as you say, he's arguably been one of the better players. Um, since he took over and you know they've obviously needed a couple of people to step forward because the likes of Ronaldo haven't quite been haven't quite been there obviously Cavani's going through his thing Rashford again is sort of not not quite there so they've needed that little spark and saying Sancho has provided it. but i do think it is saying something if sancho is you know looking like manchester's best player because you know what sancho is a good player i do i do quite like him i think he does have you know, a bright future and you know that he will he will be in the discussion to um be starting uh on the wing for england when uh when the national team uh picture comes comes around again so but if you're thinking of James Jane Sancho as the best player in your team, then I do think there there is probably something wrong. Especially for a club of Manchester United's, you know, stature and ambition, I think they need to be looking a lot higher than a lot higher than that to be, you know, as for who their main man and their talisman should should be.
1: Yeah, in a sense it's a case of Sancho's got better and everyone else has got worse. So Sancho's become the best by default. But as you rightly say, that standard, that level there it's not good enough. And we can see that as United slip down the table and they slipped down the table because Arsenal have moved up the table. Now, Carl, obviously you mentioned earlier in the show that Arsenal's games in hand look tough. There's no doubt about that. But I guess what they can do at the moment is win the games in front of them, the ones that they are kind of in the bank already. And they did exactly that on Sunday. They were made to work for it a little bit, but the goals
2: they scored were fantastic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you say, you know, you, you, you can't knock Arsenal. They've had the games and they've been winning them and they've been winning them well. So you can't knock them. They're a young, exciting team as well. So there's a lot of potential there. It will just be whether they can do that in those tough games, especially away from home that they've got coming up. And I think, you know, they've got three games in a row away from home that I think will probably define the season and where they finish for them. They have been doing well. Like as you say, in the end, it looked like they had to work a little bit harder than they probably would have liked at the weekend. But some good goals. I mean, it helps when your manager's running halfway down the pitch to retrieve a ball for a throw-in, doesn't it? <laughs> um, you know, I did like the seeing that, you know, you got your manager running out of his area to kind of help get quick throw-ins on the go. But you can't knock them. And given the games they've got in hand, they will feel that they are in the driving seat right now for that top four race because, like I say, they have still got three games in hand on United, so they'll be feeling very confident right now.
1: Well, Matthew, I was going to mention Arteta. Now, the technical area is meant to be, shall we say, like an invisible barrier or force field for managers. You're not meant to leave that, that's your part of the pitch. Now, Arteta quite obviously left that on Sunday, played a key part in a goal. If you're the referee, do you pull that back and say, well, "I'm not having that"? There's been some, I don't know, artificial assistance here. Can you call it like that?
3: I think if you are, I think you're being very, very picky with it. I know it is. Uh, uh, speaking afterwards, I know Roy Hodgson basically said he didn't, he didn't have a problem with it. He's basically praised, um, praised Arsenal and Arteta for thinking, for thinking on their feet. And I sort of go in that again. If you're going by the letter of the law, then yes, it probably does. Not. But again, in that quick instance, if the referee's not looking at it and the linesman isn't looking at it, and uh, there's nothing in the VAR in the build up to make you think, you know, to go back and check it, then there's really nothing for you to think that there's anything then th- th- there's anything wrong with it again he did technically break the law but i think in the grand scheme of things if you're looking at everything that managers do and how lenient they can be with their technical area because we see managers leave the technical area all the time um yeah even even I, i've you no know, plenty of times even just to you know get the ball further back down the you no know, hoover back down for a goalkeeper to uh take a goal kick or something like that it, it's, it, it has happened it has happened at times so it's not a major thing but I think it's probably something that is getting a little bit of scrutiny, just because it happened to be the third goal in a three-two win. So it may have, you know, had a had an effect on the side. But in the grand scheme of things, I I don't think it really should be like in the subject of any sort of FA investigation or anything for whoever the referee was to say, oh, you didn't do you didn't do your job. There, I think just let this one just let this one go.
1: That's fair enough. I remember Antonio Conte booted the ball in Euro 2016 against uh, when Italy played Spain. hadn't even gone out of play, had it? And he kind of encroached onto the pitch and just whacked it. So it happens. I guess it's a rush of blood. But I, as you say, Matthew, it would be really harsh for Arsenal to get that goal disallowed. But I guess the rules are the rules. But credit to Arsenal for breaking them or bending them at the weekend. But for Watford, Carl, they're having no joy at home this season at all. Their last eight matches at Vicarage Road... They've lost all eight. Now, they're getting some joy away from home under Roy Hodgson, but surely at this stage of the campaign, it's vital to get some results on familiar ground.
2: It is, yeah. And it'll be something that they they definitely want to try and work on. But again, I think, you know, when you're one of those sides and you look at games in your calendar... A game against Arsenal at home, you're probably going to say that's not going to be the defining game of the season for us because they're a side that we probably should expect to come and probably have a better team, better players and beat us. So, again, I think it's a result that you are probably be encouraged by the fact you've pushed them the way you have. But now after that is where you're going to sit there and say, right. But now we definitely need to make sure that those fixtures against sides where we should be getting something at home, they're the ones we can't afford to suddenly not turn up in and get performances. They'll be encouraged that they manage to score two against Arsenal. So that will make them think, well, okay, you know, the next game and the next team we get at home, we'll feel confident. You know, again, off the back of that win as well at Villa. So I think Roy is going to give them a chance. I mean, when you look at the table... You know, it's it's really close down there and you've got Leeds, Everton and Burnley who, again, are not consistent either. So it's just going to be what team can find a run, you know, a run of three or four games where they suddenly pick up points in each one of those games. It's going to put themselves in a really good position and it's getting momentum. And unfortunately, that's something Watford can't get right now. You know, it's one win, you know, then a couple of defeats then a draw, then another couple of defeats. They just need to try and stop those defeats coming, even if they only pick up a point. But Roy is going to give them a chance by the looks of it. I I don't see them having enough, but it's going to be really close down there and and it could even go to the last game of the season.
1: Well, Matthew, it seems like the natives are getting restless at Vicarage Road because on Sunday, there were boos within the ground when Imran Lauza was subbed off by Roy Hodgson. So do you reckon that's just frustration in isolation or are things already getting tetchy outside the M25?
3: I think you. I think you would. You wouldn't blame that they're inside the N25, aren't they? I don't, I don't know my
1: geography actually. Let the M 25 roughly. I know yeah, roughly. Yeah. I know, a, I know we're in the N25 belt, but I don't know if it's inside or outside.
3: So. Good I think. I think they're in. But this is. This isn't the total geography podcast. <laughs> um, anyway, um. Yes. Um. So was. Yeah. I. I can sort of understand because they are. You know. I think. Whilst I. I would pr- pretty much put. As hard as it is for me to say for Roy Hodgson, I do think Watford are in the process of going down but you're not really surprised because of how they run the club. But even if they do have, they do have something of a fighting chance. And if they th- feel that, you know, they do still have the chance to win the game and the guy that brought up was actually doing quite well in the game. And um, I was listening to this on the radio and uh, the car member who was on commentary was saying that he was having a brilliant game and was arguably one of the better players. So if he's, if he's taking them off, then you can quite understand why uh, the Waffle fans would be uh, giving, uh, would be, uh, would be booing them the way they did. Because um, they think, right? You know, we are still in with a chance of winning this game. Let's let's keep on. Let's keep on our best players. So I can understand why it is coming. You know, if it was, you know, derby of two thousand seven eight, at this point of the season, then you'd say, what are you booing for? It's not going to make a difference. But I think in Watford's case, it can very much make a difference. So yeah, I can certainly understand. I can certainly understand their frustration on the day and why they decided to vocalise it as they did.
1: Okay, let's stay towards the bottom now because Cole. After Monday night, I think the Everton are too good to go down. Myth has been well and truly busted.
2: Oh yeah, one one hundred percent. I mean, that's the side that you look at and just think defensively. You're really worrying for them because they are just all over the shop. You know, naive. The the way that they were opened up, the way with the way they were, um, that was schoolboy defending and defending. You sort of sit there and say. You know, when you look at their front line and midfield players, you think, well, they should have enough quality in there with what they've got. You know, you've got Calvert-Lewin, who's a great striker, Richarlison, and you're thinking, yeah, okay, look, you know, that strike force is pretty good. But if you're going to start shipping the sort of goals that Everton shipped last night, then you really are in trouble because those guys could score two, and you'll still be on the end of a 5-2 hammering. Um, Big issues there, and I think the appointment of Frank... You know, you, you you can look at that and say, was this the wisest appointment? Because, again, you know, you've got a guy here who has no experience of relegation. You know, he's still in his early years of football management. Um, and you ultimately say, does he have the experience to get them out of there? Do the players have enough to turn it around? I think going forward, they've got enough to score goals. But you've got a goalkeeper that's always liable, like he did last night, you know, his son's goal. That should have been saved. And then defenders that are just all over the place and and not aware of what's going on around them. And when you look at the table right now, you would be starting to really panic if you're an Everton fan because you can't see where the next point is coming from.
1: Well, I know they've got Newcastle the Thursday after next, so that could be six points of territory. But, Matthew, let's focus on their defence a bit more. Jamie Carragher said after the game that it was championship quality. Now, that might be a bit reactionary, but it's not a million miles off. But Michael Keane, in particular, has had a pretty bad week or so because he was at fault for Man City's winner at Goodison, put a ball in his own net last night, that being Monday, hauled off at half-time. Frank says he was unwell, but you get a feeling there might be a bit more to that. So, is he kind of one of the, I guess the poster boy of a lack of confidence in Everton's defence at the moment?
3: I I think he is because I think... Michael Keane is probably the. Uh, that it, he's not the best. experience. i to probably get a shame Coleman, but he's probably that I would argue the best central defender that Everton have because I think he's been. Has has it been caught up to the England squad, Michael Keane? I know he's. Yeah, yeah. I know he's in the. I know he's been in the conversation at least, so I think he's probably the best defender that that Everton have. And as you say, if he's not been having the best. Run of form. then it does just sort of say if he's the best, then what of the then what have the rest of them got. So yeah, maybe it's just he just passed his you no know, his prime as it were. Maybe it's Lampard isn't really focusing on the defence because he's got he, he really does have a lot of other issues to sort out at Everton. Um, it's just a multitude of things, But as you say, if that is what if that is what they are producing and Mark Keane is going through this bad run of form, then you do start to worry that Everton will not be able to get you know you know will not be able to sort of. Uh, stop, the, uh, stop the sinking ship, as it were. Well,
1: I guess they just don't have battle-hardy players, do they? They have players that are neat, they're compact, you know, they can do great things on the ball when it all clicks. But as Col rightly says, this is a team in absolute crisis and now it's time for players to stand up and be counted and you look through that squad and you just don't see it, do you? Like Donny van der Beek hasn't really got the aptitude for a relegation battle. Deli Alley even really. Not not great signings which are going to shore things up. There are forward-facing Attacking signings, really, to try and mould a team. But Everton are going backwards. And this is a a new manager, a few new signings in January. There's no other kind of safety valves they can activate between now and May. It's all hands on deck. And, Carl, when you look at Everton, obviously they were bad in defence. But it also would be unfair to forget how good Tottenham were. You look at Harry Kane scintillating again last night. He doesn't sort of get hat-tricks anymore, but he's always good for a brace. And what a brace it was on Monday.
2: Yeah, you know, he, he's definitely back to his best now, isn't he? You know, given everything that went on in summer, he definitely had a slow start when he came back in and you could tell that there were still rumblings and he maybe he just wasn't quite at it in terms of fitness but he now since Conte come in and these last the last month or so has really been at it and back to the cane of old you know if you give him the sort of time and let him pick the ball up like Everton did last night he will tear you apart you know I mean the, the finish for the second goal even the first you know when he was one on one you had no doubt that that was going in you know you just knew right here we go here comes the next goal and the finish for the, his second was just unbelievable from that angle um he is just a great player and, you know, taking over, you know, beating Thierry on his record now for goals. There are still people out there who seem to just want to label Kane as a, yeah, but he's not world-class because he hasn't won anything. I mean, that is just got to be one of the most ludicrous viewpoints <laughs> you can ever have. You know, you just start saying, don't you? If You're not using your eyes to see how good this guy is. And then you've got to say, consider the numbers he's getting – In a struggling side and a side that for years hasn't really, you know, the last few years hasn't really been at it and he's been carrying, anyone who can doubt him, you just have to say, well, I'm not too sure you you know football that well. But last night, it all clicked. You know, Doherty probably had his best game in a Spurs shirt since he joined from Wolves, you know, three assists and the through balls were really, really good. Um, But if a team let Spurs play that way, We will play that way, and we can hurt teams. It's now just trying to make sure that you know, as we always say, Dan, don't we? You know, it's one step forward, two steps back with Spurs. This next game at Old Trafford is a real crunch moment because this is a game now where they need to go and try and lay a marker down, get the result there, and say, listen, we're not a team that crumble when there's pressure on. Uh, We're now going to go to Old Trafford and get a result. I think it's going to help having the time between games that we do now, you know, a full week's preparation. I think there's a stat that shows, you know, every time Conte has had sort of five days or more, we get a result. And obviously that means there's prep time on the training pitch. Um, So they really need to follow that up. But last night, you know, I think, to be honest, there were probably some Sunday league sides that could have done the sort of damage that we did to Everton last night. But you still have to do that damage and you still have to be as clinical as we were.
1: Absolutely. So Matthew, in terms of Harry Kane, as Carl says, he's moved past Thierry Henry in the Premier League goalscoring charts. If he gets nine more for Spurs, it will be the most for one single club in the Premier League. Aguero on 184, Rooney got 183 for Man United. If Kane gets 185, that's that kind of record, if you will. But do you think he can get the all-time record of Alan Shearer's?
3: I, th- I think he can, but, and this is probably going to pain you, I think he has to move club in order ah. to do it. I, th- I, th- I think whilst Harry Kane has been brilliant for Spurs, I think Spurs have been brilliant for Harry Kane, especially this, this partnership that he's got with Sun Hyun Min, which was always good, but then just came out of nowhere to boom, flourish. Um, under Mourinho last season, I think whilst he's been great, I think if you put him in a side like Manchester City that create the chances and the number of chances that they do, and if he's on penalty duty for them, because they do tend to get a lot of penalties as well, you'd think that's probably... I think he probably can do it at Spurs if he sticks around a lot. But I think if he went to a club like Manchester, I think that's probably just he'll just give him that just necessary that extra 10% boost they'll need um to do it. Again, I would I would like to see Harry Kane do it all at Spurs personally because I'm a romantic in that sense. But I just think pragmatically in my head, if he wants to do it, th- there's the trophy aspect of it as well. But if he if that's the record that he is going for, then I just think I think he has to go to a club like Manchester City. You could argue Liverpool as well, but I don't think they're really in the market for him. I know Manchester United have also made a note for him in the past, but it would probably have to be one of those clubs in order to make it happen, in order to definitely make it happen, as it were.
1: Carl, could there be an interesting kind of story in all of this that Kane stays at Tottenham, wins the goal-scoring record, but never wins a trophy? Would that, I know it's not an actual physical trophy, and people would go and moan at all of this anyway, but Is there something to be said for that? That Kane is Mr Tottenham and he does it in the best possible way that becomes the Premier League's best ever goal scorer for one single club?
2: I mean, I I honestly think, you know, he could stay at Spurs and probably still break that record. I I agree with, you know, I agree with Matthew as much as it pains me to say that I think if he stays with Spurs to do it, that still takes him maybe, you know, three, maybe four years before he actually can do that. (coughs) Excuse me. Whereas... You know, if he was to move to Man City, you could easily see Kane scoring 25-plus goals a season given the service they get, and he reaches that landmark quicker. Um, You know, would he stay at Spurs for good and just be a one-club man? And yes, you know, ultimately, there is that fear that he would never have a major honour against his name, but he could go down as the all-time leading scorer. Um, I guess that's something to be had for that. You know, he'll ultimately... that. Breaking that record will be his ultimate goal. I just think there's probably more of a desire to come away at the end of his career with some honours. Um, league titles, you know, cups, you know, fighting for Champions League. Because, you know, listen, it, it would be great to have the goal-scoring record. Of course it would. But players want to look back and say, I won titles, I won cups, you know, great nights in Europe. Um whether that's going to be too strong a pull for Harry, I don't know. A, a lot will depend on this summer. And, you know, I do think he will demand to see the manager being backed and seriously backed. And if he doesn't think that, then I can see another summer again where we, you know, we're looking at the, the, the rumors and that, that the city want him. Um, and does Kane want to leave and go somewhere else? Um, I think, you know, against Matthew there I don't think United are in the race for Harry Kane right now and I don't think Kane would be too keen to leave for them because I don't see United being in a position like Spurs where they're going to win anything in the next few years so I honestly only believe that they're a Man city on the table and then it depends whether they want to come in for him if they don't he may feel well actually are any of those clubs going to guarantee me um honors the way Spurs will so an interesting summer coming up, and one that again won't be easy for us to see because we'll be on tender hooks till the first game of the season. Well, yeah, Matt-
3: sorry, just I just want to say that was just a club that I have seen mentioned for him in the past. Like I saw Chelsea mentioned as well, but I'm totally ruling Chelsea I just know the Man United have been linked. I'm not necessarily saying they will, I'm saying they have been linked in the past.
1: Good clarification, Matthew. But Matthew, back to you because Spurs haven't had the best week though, because obviously, smashing Everton for five getting smashed out of the FA Cup by Middlesbrough. It's now 14 seasons without a trophy. Does that put more pressure on the board or the manager come the summer?
3: I think. That's a tough. I think. I think it's more. I think it's more on the board. I don't think there's really much pressure under Conte at the moment, because it is still a case of he took over in mid-season, and whilst you know the time frame of when he took over, you would expect that there's enough time for him to get into the Champions League. It is still, you know, what did he have to take over with? You know, not the greatest uh, Spurs side, the you know, and not the greatest situation that uh, Nuno Espirito Santo left him. Um, and also, he did kind of balls up the Europa Conference League as well. So there is someone here, but I think because of mid-season, he gets something of a pass. I think it really is all on the board. Who, for you know, years now it's been the it's been the whole thing with Daniel Levy refusing to spend, or at least refusing to spend to the same extent as other as other clubs have. So I think that's really I think that's really on them because I think if they can if you know, four as you say 14 seasons. To go 15 seasons there's something about that, that, that number 15 or it's officially a decade and a half without a trophy that really should be sending a really really strong message um to the board that you know this this cannot go on forever and you know part of it is due to the fact that you haven't backed up and you haven't you know funded in the way that you know other clubs are so i think it's more going to come on um on the board rather than conte that's not to say conte's completely Blameless in all this, but I think more of it goes on the board. So let's move on to
1: Newcastle now, because they would love to win a trophy in 15 years. I think theirs is about 60 odd their trophy drought, but their drought for victories is no longer because they are now nine unbeaten in the Premier League. Carl, they had to hold a little bit against Brighton, but what a big victory that would be as well.
2: Yeah, that was just another big win for them, wasn't it? You know, and that's you know four out of the last five, four out of five wins. and they're really turning it around, aren't they? And you're starting to think, you know, they are pulling themselves out of danger and putting all the others in because, you know, it wasn't that long ago, you know, just before the January transfer window, we were thinking, well, Newcastle are in real trouble here. But the way they're playing right now and the results they're getting, you got to think the momentum is with them Again, Everton coming up next, as you say, Dan, that's almost a six-pointer, isn't it? And a win there, and you kind of feel they'll really put themselves or a real good chance of pulling themselves out of even that relegation dogfight. And then end up, they can look forward for the rest of the season thinking, we can finish strong and finish up there, you know, maybe 10th, 11th, around that mark. And then that's a brilliant end of season for them and sets them up nicely for the, you know, project mark two, where you go, well, okay, we've achieved the first goal to stay up now we this is where we start to build and progress and that's where the money can then start being launched and then you would expect that you know that club has got big trophies in mind and you you know you could see them getting it you know in the future you will see newcastle will probably be premier league champions and up there fighting for european cup so they're doing everything they need to right now though and i'm confident they won't be going down this season
1: Well, Matthew, are Newcastle making hay while the sun shines? Because after Southampton on Thursday coming up, their running is incredibly difficult. It's basically the whole of the top half. So their unbeaten run at the moment is vitally important because without that, that last stretch of the season is even more difficult.
3: Yeah, it is the fact that they've got points. Uh, they've got points in the bag. Something that you know we discussed them earlier. Everton do not have because you look at Everton's running and it is incredibly hard. Newcastle are very much in the same boat. So they have taken the opportunities that have been presented to Again, you know how much you know would they have been able to do this if it was just Eddie Howe in charge? You know, and he was taking over you know, from Steve Bruce's side, or is part of it due to the fact they managed to improve in a whole number of positions, mainly uh, mainly the def- uh, the defensive line. Um, but you know, you can only, you know, you can only be what's put in front of you and all that lark. And so I think it is a you know huge credit to Newcastle. United. They may not get through this. They probably, in the fact, they probably won't get through this stretch of the season unscathed for the fact that they've got themselves in a pretty decent position. I think it's seven points clear at the bottom of the, um, from the bottom of the table. I mean, games in hand hands and everything, uh, fluctuates, everything. Um, but yeah, seven points clear does put them in a reasonable, good, uh, reasonable position. So they can afford the odd slip, uh, between now and the end of the year, and probably still get enough of the, you know, the odd result. Maybe nick a draw against one of the bigger teams, uh, just to see them through. So I think that, I think after you know after this run of the results, Newcastle are probably more more safe, uh, you know, more or less safe at this stage.
1: Yeah, I think they're nine points short of the target. I don't think 40 points is going to be desired this season or needed, shall we say? I don't think it's going to be that much. I think 37 is probably the magic number this season. So, two wins, three draws. I think they can do that in the final stretch and you can't put a price on momentum. And that's exactly what they've got at the moment. Something that Norwich wish they had as after suffering a four straight defeat in the Premier League. Carl, that loss to Brentford is probably going to hurt more than the ones that happened against Man City and Liverpool in recent weeks.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's what we said, isn't it? You know, after those games, you're sitting there going, those matches won't define Norwich's season. But this weekend's match is the sort of game that is going to define their season. And that was just a horror show. You know, that's the sort of game where you need to be picking up a minimum of a point to give yourself a chance of survival. And the way that, you know, Brentford have been in dreadful form themselves and the fact that they've then gone there and won as convincingly as they have, that's what worries you about Norwich and just makes you think, I don't think there's a quality there that they can get themselves out of this. I mean, obviously, it's there for the taking, you know, but they've played... You know, the most games there as well. So they don't even have any games in hand that they can think, well, OK, we've got some games in hand here. Um I think it's just going to be too much for Norwich an and I don't think they have the quality. And if you're losing to a team like Brentford at home, that convincingly, then I think it's game up, unfortunately.
1: Well, Matthew, on the flip side, that was a hugely important win for Hounslow Town. They ended their unwanted run of results. And also, it puts a much-needed breathing space between themselves and the drop zone. Not only that, great to see Christian Eriksen pretty much pulling the strings at Carrow Road.
3: Yeah, I think Christian Eriksen is probably the only uh, positive note that I can take uh, take out of, that, uh, out of that result because I do I do quite like Christian Eriksen, and obviously the situation that's surrounding him, I do think you know Spurs were very much wrong uh, to let him go when they had the chance. Uh, or when they when they did. But yeah, it's, you know, yay for yay for <laughs> t- the, 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 the media, the media. I, I mean, I, I can say one thing, at least the media loving has stopped. They're not the media okay. darling anymore. I think Newcastle and no, I have taken that on. So it's so it's made it somewhat more bearable. This is, you know, they're just that's being left alone to do their own thing rather than like it was at the start of the season. Everyone. Just falling over Thomas Frank and all that lot. And, oh, look at their recruitment model. Oh, they sell their best player. But they can carry on as if they're the only team they've ever done that. Um, but, yeah, so yay for them. I may as well just say, yeah, yeah, woo. I'm looking forward to beating them next season. That's all I'm saying.
1: There we go. Let's move on very quickly then. So, Cole, Liverpool. They did manage to edge out West Ham on Saturday night. But if West Ham had their shooting boots, that could and should have been a much different story at Anfield.
2: Yeah, that's right. Definitely. You know, West Ham really put up a good performance there. You know, it, it, that, you got the impression that could have been one of them games where an early goal and and could West Ham kind of either fight or, or do they collapse and Liverpool go uncomfortably? Um, I mean, the goal itself, you know, when you look at the Lukaku goal and that goal at the weekend, you kind of go, well, wow, you know, how can one be allowed and one not be? You then look at a tackle that Jota made um, where you think, well, how has VAR not brought that back and possible red card there? So West Ham put up a real good fight and and will come away feeling really unlucky um, that they didn't get anything out of that game. But again, it's, you know, it's what those top teams do, isn't it? You know, they get those points, they get those wins over the line, even if it's not pretty. Um, And obviously, you know, it just keeps that title race going, doesn't it? So it's good for the title race. Um, West Ham will take some encouragement. You know, not many teams are going to go there and give Liverpool a tougher game as that. So, They'll be, they'll be encouraged, but Liverpool, you just think, are going to do what they need to do. And that crunch game against City is going to be so huge for where the title goes.
1: Now, Matthew, during that game, Jared Bowen limped off with a heel injury. Now, when you consider that international call-ups are just around the corner, that could be bad timing for both he and the Hammers.
3: It is. Not not even just the international stuff. But they've got the Europa League yes. coming up this week as well. So, you, th- you know, how crucial... Um, yeah, because boss West Ham may be able to change. They may never be you know, this deep in, in a Europa run or any sort of European run against. you You've got to think they are probably sweating to see whether or not he's uh, going to be available for. I, I was reading in the Athletic uh, today that he's probably out of this week's game and the Aston Villa game, but they will be sweating. He's at least back. Um, for next for the second leg because he he has been an incredibly important player for them but as you say just on the england on the england front he has been you know probably the most prominent player um this season of oh he's on the verge of an england call-up has hasn't been called up in the past but you know he's on the verge of an england call-up so the fact that he's he's you know getting it at this at this time just goes yeah it's a bit of a kick in the teeth and may have to just uh delay his debut but but hopefully not hopefully everything is you know uh, better than better than better than imagined, as it was, and he can come back because I think he he does he does deserve his England call up. I think he's uh, been fantastic for the Hammers this season.
1: He'll get that rattle soon, Matthew, won't he?
3: Yes, same thing you mentioned about. I've lost the rattle. I thought, we, <laughs> I, thought we moved on. I thought it was the kazoo this year. Well, what what, what instrument do we have? The the, instrument talk was gone. We
1: had the Calvert-Lewin kazoo, didn't we? Then we had the England rattle. I think we need something for the start of next season because that's when it's World Cup talk from July onwards. So don't worry about it now, but let's think of something for season five. I'll get
3: to HMV, get a drum or something. Excellent,
1: excellent. Right, so let's move on very quickly. Carl Aston Villa, they blew Southampton apart on Saturday. A 4-0 win that I don't think anyone would have really seen before kick-off when you consider Southampton's decent form. But also, Philip Coutinho has reminded everyone what a special talent he can be.
2: Yeah, as you say, Dan, I don't think anyone would have seen that result coming. the form Southampton have been in. I think, you know, you would have said that's a tough game, you know, and Villa, Villa are not a bad side. You know, they've had a little dip recently, but they're still a good side. Um, but you didn't see them blowing Southampton away the way they did. Um, and yeah, and as you say, Coutinho is vital in that. We know there's a great player in there. You know, he's shown it in the Premier League before. It's just obviously didn't work out for him in Barcelona. You know, he is a player that if you can build a system around him and give him the sort of freedom to do what he wants to do, then he can hurt teams. And And he showed that this weekend. You know, it's a great addition for Villa. You know, when they get things going there, we have him and McGinn playing and Oli Watkins up front. That is dangerous. Um, and long may it continue. Because, you know, I, I would have liked to see Coutinho at Spurs. We don't have a setup that kind of, allows the sort of player like that at number 10 but if you can set him up and get him in the side and get him back to that fitness which looks like he's getting to each week now he is a dangerous player and one that I think will will help Villa improve and progress and they'll be thinking if they can make that a permanent deal for next season
1: Well this is it Matthew would you consider Coutinho to be in a shop window for others or if he does well for Villa say they get a top half finish a bit more prize money does that make a deal from Barcelona all that bit easier
3: I I think it's going to be lean more towards Aston. I think that they in, the, in a first refusal sense. I know they do have an option to sign him, and given the way he has done, I think they'd be stupid. They'd be stupid not to. I think uh, thirty-three million. I think no, is yes. Yeah, when you think of do you think of what Philip Coutinho can bring, and yeah, if he carries on this sort of form if he does it for the whole of next season then you can imagine aston villa being challenging for europe and maybe even challenging for the odd cup so he can get that money back straight he may even get it back on shirt sales for all we know because he he does have that sort of impact on a club so yeah i think i i'd be stunned if he i mean i'd be stunned if he is at anywhere other than aston villa next season
1: well, if Villa are competing for Europe, they'll likely be competing with Wolves. Wolves lost at the weekend, their third successive league defeat. That's derailed their European hopes. But let's focus very quickly on Palace. Max isn't here, so Cole, you've got that remit this week. I guess Vieira just continually proving the doubters wrong, because not only are they in the top <laughs> half of the table now, but also in the last eight of the FA Cup.
2: Yeah, it's been a good first season, hasn't it? You know, and they've had some good play. You know, Conor Gallagher you know, he has been one of the standout players for them this season. And that again, this weekend was a result that I don't think, you know, anyone no not many people would have put that down as a palace win in their accumulator. No. So I don't think anyone saw them going there and getting that result, keeping a clean sheet. And they're ticking along nicely, aren't they? And you think they're setting the ground and the foundation to kind of build on that next season. Obviously You know, it'll be key to see what happens with Gallagher because he has been brilliant for them this season. You know, can they keep him? Will Chelsea want to recall him back and look what they can do with him? Um, I I think there's a chance Palace could get him again next season as well. So that would be good for them. Zahar, if he's on fire, is great. I think if Palace can go and get themselves a real goal scorer next season and they can build on what Patrick has started there, then they'll be thinking that next season, can they repeat what they've done this season or even build on that and go one better and start challenging for that top, you know, six, five or six. So they'll be really pleased the way this season's gone. You know, they had a little dip, but that's a good result. And now, you know, they've played well in their last few games. Now, unlucky to lose to Chelsea. So I, I think they'll be relatively happy with the way things are going at Palace. There
1: you go, Max. If you're listening, it's all good at Selhurst Park. And Matthew, finally... Leicester, they got the better of Leeds. And although Leeds offered more resistance in defence this weekend, I mean, they had to after their disaster month of February, it wasn't the start that new boss Jesse Marsh would have wanted.
3: No, not the start that he would have wanted. They didn't get the new manager bounce, as it were. But I think there there was enough there for them to see. No, if it's just... A case of, I think I put this point up last week. You know, just a new voice in the dressing room because their style of play isn't too dissimilar to what it was from So that's why I think they went with him. They, you know, just have a, a slightly natural progression. Um, but yeah, there was there was enough there for you to think right. Under this new guy, they may just be able to go back. You know, even if it is the case of picking up, you know, one win and one more draw and then just the other three teams below them, you know, Burnley, Watford, Norwich, say, there there being three teams worse than them, then they should be able to go to because they do put up a decent fight against Leicester. And, you know, they, again, there should just about be enough to see them through.
1: I guess a lot of it will hinge on Patrick Bamford and also the return of Calvin Phillips. I know Bamford was on the bench at the weekend, but Phillips has been the real key fulcrum of midfield. His return can't come soon enough. And if that is just in time for the run-in, it might just aid Leeds' hopes of finishing outside the bottom three. But that's for another week because we've hit full-time now. So I just need to do the admin, which is as simple as thanking my two pod members. Matthew, thank you for your time this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed that one. Yep, absolute pleasure. And, Carl, thanks for wearing the captain's armband once again. Looking forward to doing it again next week.
2: Yeah, really enjoyed that, Dan. And like I say, looking forward to chatting on things Premier League again next Tuesday.
1: Absolutely. Right. Cheers, guys, and also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leads me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?